Father, we love You and we love Your Word. It's the desire of our hearts to know it better. So I ask that as we enter in, God, that You would open our hearts and our eyes and that we would behold glorious things from Your Word. I pray that our affections would be stirred for You. Our understanding of You would be made greater. I pray that You would be glorified as uh, we have come here in uh, humble dependence upon You, acknowledging that we, we need You, Lord, uh, in every possible way. We need to know You in a greater way. And we want to learn from You and we want to obey You. And so I ask that You bless this time. May Your Spirit move mightily as it already has been. And I thank You for this time. Be glorified, Father. In Jesus' name, Amen. Okay, well, as Dalton said, we're kicking off the study of Acts today. And I couldn't be more excited about this. And I really see God's hand on it. Because we've already spent a number of weeks considering the Calvary Chapel distinctives, uh, what makes us who we are. But now we're, we're really getting into the birth of the church. And we're going to look at a lot of fundamental, foundational elements of the church. What was important to the church in the beginning and so many of the traditions that we embrace today, where did they come from? What are areas that we're lacking in? Things that we see the, the church doing well there, but maybe we're not doing so well. And so this is good. I just think that it's the Lord's timing. And so my goal is, is we're just going to plow our way all the way through the New Testament. And so we're going to uh, go through Acts and we're just going to keep on moving. So excited about this next season. I asked you to turn to Luke because most of you may know that Luke authored both the Gospel of Luke and Acts. So in a sense, it's kind of like part one and part two. And the introductions are, are quite similar. And so I wanted to make note of the introduction in Luke first, and then we'll flip over to Acts. So allow me to read to you Luke chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Inasmuch as many have taken into in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you are instructed. So Luke set out to create a very orderly and systematic and detailed account of the gospel story to deliver to this man Theophilus. And we'll, we'll talk more about that in, in just a moment. But now after having read that, and he did just that. Luke is a physician. It was very obvious that he was looking at this in, in a very clear and uh, consistent, logical manner, and he really detailed it in a very orderly fashion as he said that was his intention. And uh, it's, it's so good, it's so helpful for us. And such is the case with Acts. So if you would now flip to Acts. He picks up Acts much the same. Verse 1. He says, The former account I made, O Theophilus, of all that Jesus began both to do and teach, until the day in which He was taken up, after He through the Holy Spirit had given commandments to the apostles whom He had chosen, to whom He also presented Himself alive after His suffering by many infallible proofs, 
being seen by them during 40 days and speaking of the uh, things pertaining to the kingdom of God. And so he's just reminding the recipient of this letter of the first account in which he chronicled all the details surrounding the birth of Christ, the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, ultimately His ascension to the Father. And so now he's going to move on into that. Now, Jesus had made a promise to the disciples. He said, it's better for you that I go away. Because if I don't go away, then the Helper will not come. But if I do go away, the Helper will, will come to you. And He was speaking of the Spirit. And that's exactly what's happening. Jesus is, is going to ascend to the Father. Uh, we see here, according to Luke, Jesus has been raised from the dead. He has appeared to many people in His new resurrected body. And He's getting ready to ascend. But before He does, He reminds the apostles. He reminds them of the promise of the Father. And... Um, Basically, this is part two. Jesus will ascend into heaven, the Holy Spirit will come down, and then the church will be born, and then the story continues. So in a lot of ways, Acts is really just a continuation of the Gospel of Luke. So as I said, Acts is going to look at the birth of the church, the growth of the church, and the spread of the church by the apostles through the power of the Holy Spirit. And so when we say the book of Acts, what, we're, what it is referring to is the actions of the apostles in the beginning of the church. But some people would suggest that that's not even accurate. It's more the acts of the Holy Spirit. The actions of the Holy Spirit in the early church, in the birth of the church. Now Luke is an eyewitness of uh, chapters 16 and following. So the first 15 chapters, uh, he's, he's recording for us things that he had heard, things that he learned as he investigated other people. But Luke actually enters into the narrative in chapter 16, and you begin to pick up on that as he begins to say, and we were here, and we went there, so on and so forth. The book of Acts will cover about 30 years worth of history in the, the beginning of the church. And there are two dominant characters in this book, and that is Peter and Paul. So we're going to follow Peter uh, through the first portion of the book, and then he kind of phases out, and then Paul steps onto the scene, and we see his testimony, and then kind of follows him, and it closes with where Paul is uh, in jail in Rome in chapter 28. And so this is not to give us all the details of all of the church in this time, because the church was widespread. There were many churches all over the place. And so the whole idea here is for us to gain an understanding of how it all began. And there, there are so many wonderful things that we understand and know because of this book. We would be so lost without the book of Acts. So I trust and pray that this is going to be a blessing for all of us as we consider our heritage, where it all began. And so let's look at verse 4. Being assembled together with them... Jesus, He commanded them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You have heard from Me, for John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So Jesus is getting ready to ascend, and He's commanding the disciples to wait for the promise. Wait for the promise of the Father. They're going to need it. The disciples are going to need this, what it is that Jesus is, is referencing. Because we already know up to this point, the disciples, when things got hard, what happened? 
They ran. They scattered. They needed this power. They needed this promise of the Father. And Jesus speaks of a new baptism. A new baptism. Up to this point, we're very familiar with the baptism of John, the baptism unto repentance. People who wanted to confess their sins and turn away from that life and to turn to God, they would be baptized as a, an outward uh, proclamation of that reality. But now comes a new baptism. And it is spoken of early on in your notes. I believe I have it in there. John chapter 1. John the Baptist is speaking at this point. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He remained upon Him. And I did not know Him, but He who sent Me to baptize with water said to Me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on Him, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. This is very significant. John the Baptist is speaking. We consider him really the last of the prophets in the Old Testament succession. Kind of close that out. <clears throat> and notice it says, He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on him, he's the one that baptizes with the Holy Spirit. This is talking about the Father. The Father told John that when he saw the one upon whom the Spirit rests, this is the one. This is the Son of God. This is the one who's going to baptize people with the Spirit. And so Matthew chapter 3, <clears throat> still in your notes, John says, I indeed baptize you with water unto repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John was just the forerunner of Christ. He was sent ahead of Christ to pave the way, to prepare the hearts of the people for the coming one, the Messiah. And he made that very clear. He said, I must decrease. He must increase. There's coming one after me. I'm not even worthy to take his shoes off. I'm not even worthy to carry his shoes. I baptize you with water, but he's going to baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This was the promise of the Father. Well, interestingly enough, true to form, verse 6, Therefore, when they had come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom of Israel? And he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in His own authority. Again, we've been following this all the way through Mark. These guys, they just didn't seem to get it. And so Jesus is telling them, He's giving them their marching orders. And they're like, okay, okay, that's good and all, but hey, now are you going to set up your kingdom? Now are you going to restore Israel to glory? And Jesus said, look, that isn't the timing of what God has set in place. That's not your business. That's not your concern right now. And so what's interesting to me is Jesus is not telling them that they're wrong. It's not the, uh, the event that is the issue, it's the timing. And He's saying, don't worry about that, guys. What God has set in place in His time, God is in control of that. You don't worry about that. And then He says this, verse 8, But you, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses to Me in Jerusalem, and in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end of the earth. So here again, we see this, uh, this idea of the Holy Spirit coming upon the disciples. This was the, the marching orders that they received from Jesus. They were to wait. 
Wait on the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you are going to receive power. Power for what? To be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. So as I had mentioned recently as we were going through the distinctives, we are a church, we believe in the moving and the working, the operating of the Holy Spirit. We are absolutely dependent upon it. And I thought, you know, shame on me. I went through the whole series and I never once even talked about the dove. You know, Calvary Chapel, we love that dove. You know, it's iconic. And we don't worship the dove, but we appreciate what it represents. And it represents the Holy Spirit. We are a church, we seek to be a church that is Spirit-filled, Spirit-led. We love the cross. It is behind that screen right now, but we love the cross. And we uh, are a people who recognize our need for the blood of Christ to wash us from our sins. And uh, we are a people who are in need of a Savior. And so these are things that are very important to us. So we put an emphasis on the Holy Spirit, okay? And there are a few different ways in which we see the Holy Spirit function in the New Testament particularly. One, He comes alongside a person. The Holy Spirit will come alongside and convict somebody of their sin. See, we're dead in our trespass and sins. We care nothing about God. We're not worried about God. We're busy doing our own thing, building our own kingdom, living for ourselves. The Holy Spirit comes along and convicts us. All of a sudden, something happens. You may hear the gospel presentation. Uh, it could be any number of things. And all of a sudden, in that moment, you realize you have sinned. It is true. I have transgressed God. You may not think in those terms or, or use that kind of language. But you have an opportunity to put your faith and to put your trust in Christ and to be forgiven of your sins and to receive the Holy Spirit and to be born again. That is the conviction of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit comes alongside people and convicts them of their sin. Secondly, when we receive Christ by faith, we put our trust in Him, the Bible teaches that we are born again. Jesus said you must be born again. You can't enter the kingdom otherwise. And so that is to say that you are born from above. That is literally what that means. And that is saying that the Holy Spirit comes within you and breathes new life into you. For the first time in your life, you gasp in air. You are alive spiritually. You are dead. You are alive physically, but dead spiritually. Now you are alive spiritually, filled with the Spirit. But then there seems to be a third working of the Spirit, and that is that the Spirit will come upon you for the purpose of uh, empowering you to be a witness, uh, predominantly that idea, to be able to enter into the fullness of God's calling on our lives and to be able to serve Him boldly and uh, just to have that, that anointing of the Lord. We believe in that baptism of the Holy Spirit. I do not believe that you can be a Christian and not have the Spirit in you. There are some denominations out there who are charismatic, but they would say that you can be saved and be a Christian without the Holy Spirit, and then you have to get baptized in the Spirit, then you have the Spirit. That is not what the Scriptures teach. That is not what we believe. But we believe that there's this additional working that is made available to us, and it's something that we all need, frankly. And I'm going to talk more about this at the end of the service. Today we're going to have an opportunity for people who want to be baptized, who want to be filled with the Spirit. We're going to, we're going to do that. We're going to lay hands on anybody who would desire that and pray that you, you receive that. I have prayed it multiple times. I continue to pray that. Um, early on in my Christian walk, 
I was attending a Calvary Chapel in my hometown. And, you know, there was a season of my life, guys, where I really, I didn't just sign on the dotted line with these things. I really thought through it. Considered the Scriptures, listened to different circles, people's approach, their take on these things. And, and for a lot, of, a lot of my Christian life, I didn't really know where I stood definitively. But I'll never forget this one brother in particular. He was talking to me about these things. And he said, Rob, I came to the place where I knew one thing, and that was I need anything and everything that I can possibly get. Whatever the Lord has made available to me, I need it, I want it. And so he was open to that. He was open to whatever the Lord had for him. And I, I never forgot that. I appreciate that. And now, at this point in my walk, I can amen that all day long. I know the feeling. And so I realize I need this. If they needed this, we need this. And I believe, we believe, the Scriptures make it clear it's available to us. So I just want to talk real quick about this idea of power and, and being a witness. In your notes here, I have a definition for the word power. You may have heard this often. It's one of those Greek words that, are, that is quoted quite a bit. But that word power is dunamis, from which we would get dynamite or dynamic. The idea is it's explosive power. And so he said that you will receive this power. And the definition, the ability to perform for the believer. Power to achieve by applying the Lord's inherent abilities. Power through God's ability. Dunamis is needed in every scene of life to really grow in sanctification and prepare for glory, for heaven. It's a very important term. It's used 120 times in the New Testament. So this is the power that's made available to us. He says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to be my witnesses. Now this is a simple word, guys. If you see a car crash and you have to stay there and tell the police what you saw, you were a witness to the crash. And so when we talk about being a witness to Christ, we, we just share what we know of Him, what we've experienced, what He's done in our lives. We testify to that. Now this word, martis, from which we get the word martyr, it or originally meant one who gave eyewitness or earwitness account. It later became one who died for their witness because that was the case so often in the first few centuries, uh, people were killed on a, a widespread level for their uh, testimony in Christ. And so the word witness, it came to carry that connotation. So uh, that's why we have the word martyr. And he says, you're going to receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. You're going to be my witness. And he said, in Judea and Samaria and all around the world. So that is right in their hometown, right in the surrounding areas and all the way around the world. And I don't know if you guys remember, but as we were going through Mark, I spent one entire lesson talking about all the various disciples and what we know historically, what we believe happened to all of them. And man, they really did get around the globe. It was amazing the places that they went, the places that they ministered, and the works that God did through them. And they ultimately did die, most of them. Uh, I think all of them except John died a, a gruesome martyr's death. And I won't get into all of that, but truly they did go on to be witnesses for Christ and they absolutely needed this, this uh, work of the Spirit in their lives. For us, gives us the ability to be a witness in our homes. That's where it starts. In the workplace. Being a witness in the workplace. You know, when I got ordained, one of the people that... that uh, spoke on my behalf one of the elders was my employer and you know he got up on stage and I was thinking oh man you know your employers they'll see you at your worst 
I mean, you're around them a lot. And, uh, and he kind of made that point. He said, you know, Rob and I have a unique relationship. We see the best of each other. We've seen the worst of each other. And I was like, oh, man. But he, uh, he spoke well of me. But uh, we want to be a witness in the workplace, in our schools, a witness in our, in our church, our sphere of influence, wherever that may be, out in the town, in the community, and all around the world, we want to be witnesses. We need to be witnesses of Christ. We need that power. And that really works its way into just our ability to live the Christian life. We need power just to love sometimes, do we not? We need power to be able to break the chains of bondage in our life. We need power to be able to serve supernaturally when we just don't have it in us. We're absolutely exhausted. We need power to live the Christian life. And power has been made available to us through the Spirit of God. So, verse 9 here. Now when he had spoken these things, while they watched, he was taken up, and a cloud received him out of their sight. And while they looked steadfastly toward heaven as he went up, behold, two men stood by them in white apparel, who also said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand gazing up into the heavens? This same Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will so come in like manner as you saw him go into heaven. So this is interesting. This uh, is very similar to something that happened in Luke. In Luke chapter 24, when they came to the, the empty tomb, there were these two men in white who said, why do you come seeking Jesus? He's not here. He's risen. And so here they are again, kind of asking the same question. Why are you guys standing here? And I'd probably be like, why are you guys asking so many questions? Come on. Anyways, um, they're basically saying, what are you doing with your mouth open staring at the sky? Man, get to work. And in, in, in a sense, you've received your orders. Now get after it. You know, and he's coming back. He's coming back. In the same way that you saw him go, he'll be back. And we look to that day. We long for that day. And it's interesting to note, when he comes back, it's, there's not going to be any question about it. He's coming on the clouds. And the world will see. And so there are a lot of people throughout you know, history who have claimed to be the Christ. Um, they just kind of show up out of obscurity. But the Bible says that when He comes back, He's coming on the clouds and the world will know. It will be unmistakable. Alright, so verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey. And when they had entered, they went up into the upper room where they were staying. It was Peter, James, John, and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. These all continued with one accord in prayer and supplication with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. So they did as Jesus commanded. They went back about a Sabbath day's journey. That is to say about a half a mile. That's about how far they were. Uh, they calculated on the Sabbath how far you could actually walk before it was considered working and breaking the Sabbath law. So it was about a half mile's distance. So they're back in this place of waiting. The 11 disciples are present. Uh, Judas is gone. We'll talk about that in a minute. But now it's the 11. It says that they were together in one accord in prayer and supplication. You know, they were, they were really unified. They had a reason to be. 
It's funny because we were having a conversation, me and a group of brothers recently, and we were talking about unity, kind of asking the question, is our church a, a really united church? Is that spirit of unity here? And one guy was saying, yeah, I think so, because, uh, you know, we get along pretty good, don't, not really fighting or anything like that. And I had another brother that said, you know, he said very graciously, you know, if that's our, our view of humility, that we don't fight with each other, that's, that's kind of a low view of humility because humility, or not humility, unity. It's a low view of unity if, uh, if we don't, are saying we don't fight. It's so much more than that. It's we are together with this common purpose, this common cause. We are united in heart and in mind and the priority, we share that and we are in it together. And uh, that is where the disciples were at. And they were praying together. They were in one accord. And it says that the women were present, uh, the Mar- uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. This is very significant. You know, I love these women were so faithful. They're mentioned from time to time. They were just there all along the way. Even when the disciples were not at the cross, they all scattered except for John. The women were there. The women were there. And so here they are. And still, but this time it says that his brothers are present. See, his brothers, they didn't believe that Jesus was who he said he was during his earthly ministry. At times they would even ridicule him about it. And now all of a sudden they believe. And we're told, I believe, in 1 Corinthians that Jesus appeared to James, who was his half-brother, obviously. And uh, they believed after the resurrection. And so... The book of James and Jude in the back of the New Testament, those would be the half-brothers of Jesus. They didn't believe Jesus in His earthly ministry, but after they saw uh, the, the risen Lord, they became believers. And so now they're there with the disciples, with the women. They are in one accord. They're praying. Verse 15, And in those days Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether the number of names was about 120. And he said, Men and brethren, the Scriptures had to be fulfilled which the Holy Spirit spoke before by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his entrails gushed out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem, so that field is called in their own language, Akel Dama, that is, a field of blood in Aramaic. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, and let no one live in it, and let another take his office. So it's interesting to note there were about 120 disciples at this time where they were, they were gathering. We believe that they were still in that upper room. It must have been a very large room to, to be able to hold this many people. But it's, uh, it's cool because in the next chapter, in an instant, it's going to go from 120 to 3,000 believers. It's just going to explode in a moment. Now, Peter understood that Judas's betrayal had to happen as the Word foretold. It's interesting in Luke that Jesus breathed on the disciples said, receive the Holy Spirit. We believe that at that point the Spirit indwelt them. And it says that He opened their eyes to the Scriptures. That's one of the markers of someone who is filled with the Spirit, right? Their eyes are open to the Scriptures. And now we notice here that Peter is, is looking at these Psalms and seeing them prophetically. He's understanding what these Psalms were speaking of. And so, to me, that's just consistent with the idea that they had received the Spirit and, and we're starting to see the fruit of that. So he quotes from Psalm 69, 25 and Psalm 109, 8. 
And we are given the details of Judas' death as well at this time. So you'll recall that Judas betrayed Christ for the 30 pieces of silver, but then he tried to give it back. He said, I betrayed innocent blood. He tried to give it back, but they, they really didn't want the money. They weren't willing to uh, go back on their deal. And he went out weeping bitterly. And uh, they, they bought the field with Judas's money because it, money was blood money. It was cursed, so they couldn't put it back into the treasury. And so that's why it says here, the quote here I have in your notes by MacArthur says, that's why it says that Judas bought the field. It was Judas's money that, that the uh, Pharisees, the high priest, whoever actually used to purchase the field. It says that he fell... He hung himself and he fell and his entrails spilled out. I don't know if he had been hanging there for days and was bloated and, and rotting and just the rope snapped and, you know, I was going to get really gross, but I just won't do it. I, was, I, I wanted to so bad. Um, at any rate, as some have said, maybe he hung himself on the edge of a cliff and fell and actually fell down the cliff and just was mangled. At any rate, it was a horrible, horrible way to go, and it's, a, it's just a tragedy. So now Peter says, well, we need to find his replacement. He has a part with us in our ministry. He saw this as uh, directly connected to the Scripture. This was something that they needed to do. And so uh, this was his suggestion for Judas' replacement in verse 21. He says, therefore, of these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of the resurrection. And they proposed two, Joseph called Barsabas, who was also uh, surnamed Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, you, O Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which of these Two, you have chosen to take part in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas by transgression fell, that he might go into his own place. And they cast their lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. So it's interesting to note, it's important to note, that Peter set the qualifications for an apostle here, because we live in an age... This is a, a, re, a relatively new movement, but we now have supposed apostles walking amongst us again. And they have all the authority and the power of the original apostles, and they have the ability to speak words that are as authoritative as the Scripture. And it's totally bogus. It's error. And uh, it's important, if you were really an apostle, according to this, it was they saw an apo the apostles saw an apostle as someone who was there, for the earthly ministry of Christ from His baptism on, and they were eyewitnesses of the resurrection. So these offices are closed. There is no more. The twelve apostles, when they died, that died. The, the apostolic era, the, the office of the apostles, the twelve who became apostles of Christ. Now, the word apostle means sent one. And we do still use that word in a, in a much more generic sense a small a apostle and and we may even use it in a spiritual gifting sense and it is someone who seems to be uniquely gifted in such a way that they can go to a place plant a church it just blows up and then they go somewhere else and they plant a church and it blows up and they just do this it's just some something that they seem to have uh people who who kind of birth a movement if you will by the holy spirit and 
Uh, that is unusual. Most pastors don't have that ability. They spend their whole life laboring trying to get a, a church off the ground and going and moving forward. And so we may say that that is, a, is a, uh, in a sense, the, the apostle in our day and age, but that really has nothing to do with this original apostolic ministry that was given to the twelve. And so, as I said, they sought to obey Scripture, they prayed, they cast lots. That was a, a real common practice in the Old Testament. It's something to the effect of almost like pulling straws, drawing straws, but it was more closely related to rolling dice. And so this was something that they would do. They would cast lots, and so often it would be kind of a yes-no kind of a scenario where you only had one or two options, and however it landed, okay, that was the Lord. This is the last time we see that in the Bible. Lots are no longer cast, and there's no need because the Holy Spirit is getting ready to come upon the people, and the church will be born, and now they are led by the Spirit, not by casting lots. I guess it's kind of similar to putting out a fleece. You've heard that language before. We see that. Gideon did that in Judges. He wanted to know, okay, Lord, if I'm really supposed to do this, I'm going to put this fleece out on wet grass in the morning. If it's dry, then that, that, I'll know that you know, this is of you. It was a miracle. And then he does it again the next night. He says, now let's just flip the scenario. If the grass is perfectly dry and the fleece is wet... And so it's kind of, we call that putting a fleece before people. I guess it's kind of the same concept. So anyways, that's what they did. The lot landed on Matthias. Matthias was chosen. It's interesting, one of the early church historians thinks that Matthias was one of the, the 70 that went out. When Jesus sent the disciples out two by two and there were 70 of them, uh, and they went out to cast out demons and to preach and to heal. We don't know that, but it's an interesting thought. This is the last time Matthias is mentioned. Uh, there's one more reference to the twelve apostles after this point. We see that in Acts chapter 6 when the, they're dealing with the issue of the uh, Hellenistic widows that were being overlooked in the, the daily provision of food and whatnot. So they chose deacons to take care of this responsibility. The twelve are mentioned at that point. But after that, we don't know anything else about Matthias. Some people have suggested that this was a false step by Peter and that Paul was really supposed to be the replacement. I don't know that I necessarily believe that or that that's even an issue worth considering, but it is an, an argument nonetheless. So there you have it, guys. That's, that's chapter 1 of Acts. We're off and running. Now they are waiting for the promise of the Father. And we're going to kind of shift at this point. We've got a, a few minutes left, and I want to talk a little more about the baptism and putting faith in Christ. And so um, next week, the, we're going to see the Spirit come. The promise of the Father will come to fruition. The Spirit will come upon the, the believers and they're going to begin to speak in other languages. So next week, we're going to talk a little bit about that. We're going to talk about the sign gifts, tongues, their operation. Is it for today? So on and so forth. But here and now, today, I want to talk to you guys. I want to close this service out with an invitation. I want to invite, first and foremost, if you don't know Christ, if you have not been born again, the Scriptures are very clear about this. I quoted this earlier, but John chapter 3, verse 3, Jesus said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. If you have not been born again, if you have not put your faith and your trust in Christ, if you haven't received the Holy Spirit, do not wait another day. Today is the day of salvation. If you're here and you don't know the Lord and you're hearing this, 
that is no coincidence. God has you here, and I know that His Holy Spirit is speaking to you. The Holy Spirit is alongside you right now, convicting you of your sin. Because you know, we all know that we fall so short of God's righteous standard, and that we're not good people, and that we need God's help, and that we need forgiveness. And that's what it means to confess your sin. That is to say, Lord, I agree with you. What you say about me is true. I have sinned. I have fallen short. I am lost. I am separated from you. And if I stay in this condition and die today, I will go to hell. I will be eternally separated from you. Okay? But if you put your trust in the finished work of Christ, Jesus died. He was the, the holy, innocent, spotless Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And He died the death that we deserved. He was totally innocent and pure. He alone did not deserve punishment and death, but He took it upon Himself so that we, if we put our faith and our trust in Him, that's very important, I keep saying that, we put our trust and our faith in that and believe on His name. We agree with God that we are who He says we are, and we believe that He has sent His Son, that His Son died for us and rose from the grave, the Bible says that if you believe that in your heart and confess that with your mouth, you will be saved. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. And so I want to give you guys that opportunity right now. If you don't know the Lord, today is the day. So would you just raise your hand? And after the service, I want you to come up and speak with us. But just raise your hand if you want to know the Lord. If you don't know Him, today is the day. Anybody? Okay. All right, well, let's move on to the next part. I want to talk about the Spirit. I want to talk about this baptism of the Spirit. I want to read to you from Luke, Luke chapter 11. Jesus says, So I say to you, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. If a son asks for bread from any father among you, will you give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will you give him a serpent instead of a fish? Or if he asks for an egg, will you offer him a scorpion? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask? So Jesus says, look, look, seek ask, knock, it will be open to you. The Father is ready. That is His posture. He is ready to give the Spirit to those who ask. And Jesus makes this contrast here. He says, you know, if you being evil, compared to God, we are all evil. We are less than. But we know how to bless those whom we love. We know how to shower gifts and good things on people that we desire to bless. If we have that ability within us, how much more does our Heavenly Father give good things, give the Holy Spirit to those who ask. Something interesting that I had heard a pastor mention one time about this, he uses the language of a scorpion and a serpent. And in the Bible, oftentimes we hear that used uh, referring to demonic things, demons, Satan himself. And some people, they're afraid to step out. They're afraid to pray a prayer like this because they're afraid, well, what if some kind of evil spirit comes on me or some kind of weird stuff like that? And it's like he's saying, do you think that if you ask for the Spirit, 
that your father is going to give you the devil? That's interesting to me. You know, you can have that confidence. The heavenly father is not going to allow that to happen. He's not going to do that. He gives good things. He gives the Holy Spirit to those who ask. We have to ask. And then Ephesians 5:17 and 18, Paul says, "Therefore, do not be unwise, but understand what the will of the Lord is." And do not be drunk with wine, which is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. A big part of worship in that culture was drunkenness so often, drunken orgies, and that, that was how they would worship their false pagan gods. And Paul says, don't, don't do that. Okay, You're not to be filled with wine. You're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. That's what we're all about here, filled with the Spirit. And this, in the Greek here, this be filled, it is... Be being filled, literally. And so we believe that it's something that we do regularly. We, well, we have the Spirit of God. Nothing's going to change that. You're not going to lose the Spirit because you sin or something, okay? But we are always crying out for more fresh outpourings of the Spirit of God because I realize that I can grow cold and my heart can grow dull and I can just get far from the Lord. Have you ever felt that? Have you ever experienced that? You know what I'm talking about? Some of you in here are in that place right now. You know what I'm talking about. And so we have to cry out in desperation, Lord, fill me with Your Spirit. Baptize me. And let me just say this, and then we're going to kind of close at this point. So worship team, if you would come on up. It's an act of faith. You know, I have, I've, I have received the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I believe that because the Scriptures tell me that if I ask, I will receive. I didn't have any kind of crazy experiences. I've heard some people who did. They had some sort of tangible thing where certain gifts that they didn't have before, now all of a sudden they have it. Or you read stories about uh, men of old throughout history who have had some sort of radical experience when they pray for the Spirit. But that is not, that's not necessarily the case. It's an act of faith. Just like when we believe for salvation... A lot of times, guys, you probably know what I'm talking about. When you prayed for that, you didn't feel any different. Some people would have you to think you're supposed to feel, you know, all excited on fire. And some of us are let down because we don't get that feeling. It's not about that. It's not about that feeling. We believe by faith that God is God, that His Son came and died for us, and that we're forgiven of our sins, we're filled with His Spirit, and now we are followers of Christ. Simple as that. Such is the case with the baptism. We believe by faith that God has poured His Spirit out upon us when we ask. And He will use us and He will use that for His purposes. But what we know is we need it and we need everything that we can get from the Lord and we are open to it and we are asking for it. So I want to give opportunity for that today. So we're going to close with a song. Come to the altar. And if you do still want to put your faith in Christ, I would encourage you to come up. We're going to have men up here who are available to pray. So guys, if you would come on up. Those that I called upon, Brother David, you come on up as well. And um, we're going to be here to pray for you. We're going to pray uh, that you would be filled with the Spirit. The Spirit would come upon you uh, if that is your desire. And if you want to know Christ, if you haven't been born again, if you haven't come to faith and trust in Him, it's not too late, guys. Come on up. We would love to pray for you even in that. But here's the main thing, guys. Don't be scared to come up. Don't be embarrassed about what people think, people looking around. That is the last thing. Everyone in this room desires to see people get up and come up here. Do we not? Yes. Amen to that. We do. So if God is speaking to your heart, 
that is the greatest joy of, for us is to see people respond. So respond and don't, don't worry about other people. All right? So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we love You. I thank You for this time as we uh, close out the service and we respond to the message. And I pray for people in this room who don't know You, who need to know You, God. I pray that You would encourage them and move in their hearts to come forward and to respond to the Gospel. And for those who would desire to be filled with Your Spirit afresh, God, I pray that You would move on their hearts and that they would be bold and that they would come forward in front of people and, and declare that they need You, God, and they can't do it without You. And I pray that You would bless that and You would pour Your Spirit out in this place and that it would have an effect on our congregation individually, our congregation as a whole, in their homes, their communities, their work, wherever we go, that we would be Spirit-filled witnesses who love You and serve You. And so we commit the, this time to You in Jesus' name. Amen.